and salutations one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am very happy and excited to have my old, she's not old, but we've been friends a long time, uh, my friend Gretchen Ruck uh, joining us today. Uh, Gretchen is currently Senior Managing Director at Ancora Consulting in their cybersecurity and data protection practice. Was that, did I get it right? I would say data privacy, but, but that, that's, that's okay. great. All right, data privacy. All right, good. So, Gretchen, it is a pleasure to see you. It's been a, it's been a while since I think we've been face to face. So it's it's great to see you, and thank you very much for taking time out of your super busy day doing whatever you do at uh, at Ancora. Um, so as we always do, we start off with a movie question. So right. let me think. Um, all right, so you and I are both fairly recently out of college, being the youngins that we are. So what is your favorite movie that takes place in or around college? Okay, so just to correct, though, I mean, I'm in colleges frequently um, because I, I work with them. So, but as far as like being a student one, you're right, it's been a minute. Um, so... Which decade would you like answered? Because I feel like every decade, there's like a collection of them. You want like 80s? You want 90s? What's your decade here? Um, that's a great seat. I'm asking questions. You're not supposed to ask me questions right, back. All right. All right let's do... I'm, I'm going to suggest Let's 80s. do... Let's do the 80s. 80s. Yeah. So, yes, so let's do it. Right. It was all about the hijinks. All about the hijinks. So, so okay. So... I think it's tied amongst three. Real genius, you gotta love that. Bell Kilmer at his finest, uh, unlike Batman, which is not his finest. You've got uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Enough said about that. You know, you were there, I was there. We were nerds, and um, and then finally, I'd say I would not leave out Rodney Dangerfield in Back to School. Like it's Rodney Dangerfield, so not the best movie. I'll give him a pass because it's still Rodney Dangerfield. That's my list for the eighties. All right. So I love love that list. But typical with you, you you I give I ask for one, you give me three. But okay, and I I also I take umbrage with being called a geek, uh, being called a nerd. I was a geek, very different, not a nerd, because if I was a geek, I would not. Yes, but no 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 geek there. Um. All right. So uh, so of those three, I'm I'm gonna go with Back to School. I just think that movie had some classic scenes with with um Kinnison and Rodney going at it uh and and um Ben Stein yeah that was yeah I I love I love that movie Tennessee uh, Williams was in it either remember it's like he was like Rodney Dangerfield's like Tennessee Williams you don't know anything about Tennessee Williams something like that it was it was ridiculous. It was wonderful. But he's but he stole he stole that though from Annie Hall, where Woody Allen overhears people online talking about Marshall McLuhan and he pulls Marshall McLuhan into the scene to tell them they don't know what he's talking about, which is another another great uh great scene. Uh so all right, awesome. Um I, I so I'll give you my my favorite uh school movie of all time is it has to be Animal House. I know it's not in the eighties, but Animal House to me was like that. When I saw the movie, that is why I wanted to go to college. And here's the part. So I don't think my parents listened. My parents took me to see that movie. And that was wholly inappropriate. And they didn't learn their lesson from taking me to see Saturday Night Fever with my grandma, which was another, another you're, 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 decision. You're, you're, 
you were like two years old when they came out in like 78, right? Something like that. Two years no, old, I right? was, no, I was 11. <laughs> I was, yeah, I, thanks. I, I figured it was something like that. <laughs> See, but, I, I knew you were going to yeah. find an opportunity to call me out of my age, but uh, well, yeah, all right, awesome. But, but Animal House is, is still great because, you know, like you've got, you know, th there's so many lines from that, that you and I will pull out and our children will never understand and we will snicker to ourselves. It's great. Yes. Yeah. Well, so talking about lines, so I, ha I, uh, I had Rick Grinnell uh, from Glasswing Ventures, who's one of our investors on recently, and um, we talked about comedy movies and we talked about Caddyshack, right? So using another Rodney movie. And he said his kids play golf and they say Noonan when somebody's putting, but they don't know why. They don't even know where oh, the line yeah. comes from. It's just, okay. it's gotten into the, into the culture. So, Brilliant. all right. So, um, I think that's actually a great segue. Um, you know, you and I have talked numerous times about cybersecurity in higher ed and universities. Um, you and I have a, a mutual friend at uh, one of the universities down in Florida, who I have not spoken with in a while. Um, I, I, let me just kind of set the table. I think for me, higher ed is the vertical with the widest range in maturity, right? We see universities that have programs worthy of banks. And then we see universities that like can't spell firewall, right? So tell me a little bit about sort of your experience working with CISOs and, and other security and risk people in higher ed, maybe touching on some of the, the problems. And if you can give some examples, obviously without naming names, because um, we'll have to bleep all that out. Uh, and then we can kind of go from there. You know, I, I, I almost want to do it for the bleeps, but I won't, but really <laughs> tempting. just to test it, man. Um, so, so the thing is like, you'd say that there's some very mature, some that need work, but but either way, it's it's actually a remarkable setting because I, I don't know of another environment that has like the variety of risk that they do. Because the idea is that like, okay, so you've got an environment where you're going to have employees. Okay, that makes sense. You have folks that come in that are faculty, which aren't necessarily employees, but they do work there. You have students, which may live there and do work there. You have people that come on campus to go to, to, go to games people that come on campus for other purposes, just members of the public who have no relationship there. You have all these communities and you have to be there to help them, to support them, whether they use a credit card, whether they want to hop on Wi-Fi, whatever. So, and the, the thing that makes that even more like outrageous is that these are institutions that are there for collaboration. So I'm not saying collaboration is the antithesis of security, but sometimes it feels like it. So, you know, there's a sense of collaboration. There's a sense of self-help. People, if they need something and they want to do a lab, they set it up themselves. They try to hop on, you know, the, the network through their school. But, you know, asking permission, it's a time-consuming thing. And, you know, everything is decentralized. Even if you think you've got the most mature security, you, you honestly may not fully understand what's happening in the individual schools of the college. You might not know what your students are doing. It is complicated, you know? Right. And, and I think a couple of things also to throw in there, some schools have medical systems as part of the university. So then we have HIPAA and P PHI. Uh, a lot of larger universities are doing research on behalf of the federal government and they have different requirements there. And, you know, years and years ago, I did a consulting project for a university in your area in D.C., and what we actually ended up doing was we said, you know what, we're going to treat the university like they're an ISP providing internet service for their students. And we essentially yeah. pushed 
all the controls back to the dorm and, and the buildings. That was 20 years ago or close to it. I don't think you could get away with doing that now. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think those are, those are all great points, Gretchen. Um, and I just kind of want to throw in some other things too. You know, some universities have healthcare. Some of them right. are doing research for the federal government, right? And but, but I did a project. They all have healthcare. Uh, like, you know, I mean, every but, single one. But in some cases, the health system's run by a separate group. It doesn't matter. So, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter who's running it. It's still like who controls the data, right? So it's like right. you, don't, you don't stop being responsible just because you've asked somebody else to manage it for you, right? And every single campus at a minimum has that. But a lot of the ones I work with have clinics. They have um, right. hospital right. systems that are part of them and integrated in. So, but at a minimum, every single one had some healthcare exposure. And it's like, and people do forget about it. And they sometimes treat it as something less than, even though it should be treated just as, as like substantial as any other healthcare system. Right. No, I, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a great point. And, um, you know, a bunch of years ago, I was in consulting and I did a project for university in DC and we ended up basically treating them like they were an internet service provider, an ISP, and we pushed back controls as if these people were totally untrusted. I think we, I think they had 1,500 students and there were like 1,100 different operating system profiles. And this was pre-phones and, and devices. So that also makes it, you know, much, much harder to figure out what to do. Well, that, that's kind of awesome because it's like, um, you know, you were thinking one trust before we had a with zero trust before we had purpose zero trust. It's like really that's what you're describing. It's like that. And that's what some of the schools the 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 more savvy ones are moving to is that. Like they're all they've all the more savvy ones move to systems where they can do multi-factor authentication. And they're also really trying to treat treat each entity, you know, in a way that zero trust will fit. So it's um yeah, no, you guys were ahead of the time, believe it or not. Yeah, well, I'd like to. I'd like to actually claim the idea, but it was actually one of my one of my colleagues. I was tasked with actually implementing it, but uh, yeah, it's um, so. So let's talk a little bit about the regulatory environment in higher ed because I think that's particularly interesting a lot because of what we've already already talked about. But you know, on average, people we talk to struggle with all of the different compliance requirements, right. right? And higher ed is no exception. The problem in higher ed is there's often not a lot of money. Um, and in a lot of, especially like state universities, it's very, very federated. So maybe the the CISO doesn't even have control. So how, like, if you, if, if I, if I told you I was a brand new CISO at a state yeah. university, what would you tell me to do? How would you suggest that I get started. Uh, I would wish you luck. No, um, I, I would, frankly, you're right. The federated thing is very right. One of the, like, the most unusual things is if, depending on the environment they came from, they have to move from um, a mindset of managing to coordinating. You know, you like a mindset of um, having policies and accepting that there could be multiple ways to fulfill them because that's sometimes the best option they can is just be able to work with folks, make sure they champion things, and, and, and sort of just trying to find ways to enhance visibility. You know, can you, do you even have purview? Can you even see what's happening across this environment? So, so you're right with that, but when you mention regulations, it's really interesting. I mean, there's some things that are federal that all schools have to look at, like FERPA, and that deals with student, student data. And, you know, the thing is FERPA is, is pretty antiquated. It's an old policy and, you know, 
almost all the newer things around data protection, privacy are dealing with like notification, dealing with a bit like that. And there's, there's very little notification really needed for FERPA. But, you know, what's interesting is like, so for a long time, other than maybe healthcare needs, universities didn't really think a whole lot about the different regulations because they didn't always apply. But now you have California where with CCPA coming in, what you have is that if you're a state university, if you're UC Berkeley, UCLA, you have to follow these different kinds of privacy rules where you didn't before. But if you're a private university like Stanford, you, you don't necessarily have to follow CCPA. And then the weird thing is alternative to that is in Virginia, where if you're a public university, you don't have to follow the new Virginia data privacy law. But if you're if you're if you're a private university, you do. So it's like keeping track of this, understanding what applies is amazing. And, you know, which of these universities is not an international institution? They have students from around the world. A lot of universities have have, have locations overseas for people to study that they own. They co-sponsor research. So they may follow GDPR or PIPL, which just came out in China, is really very complex to follow. And so there's a lot of folks that are concerned about that. Like Brazil is actually making a much more strict law. So like you talk about compliance, it's getting it's getting way more complex suddenly. And you mentioned federal research. If you do that, and there are a lot of schools that do, you have to worry about export laws. You have to worry about DFARS. You have to worry about ITAR. All these vegetables, you know, like words of like vegetable salad kinds of things that are floating around that you just keep tossing up, we toss up, you know, are a big deal and they're important, but it's a complex world. So how do you, how do you guide people in, in how to sort of navigate that, right? Because all these regulations are in place. Some of them are definitely more, I don't want to say important, but some of them, the ramifications of not being in compliance are significantly worse than others, right? So how do you work right. with people to prioritize where they focus when they have, you know, let's face it, right? A lot of universities, if you say, well, we need a million dollars for security, or we can buy new costumes for the, for the cheerleaders, for the football and basketball team, security is not going to get that money. Right. So how do you figure out how to prioritize and then how do you help them sell? Right. We used to talk about that all the time when we were uh, LPs together. How do you sell security to people with money who can spend that money in 20 different places? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Well, I mean, the, the, the short answer is risk management. You know, the idea is that you need to help people understand, like, well, what happens if we don't do it? Um, where are we most exposed to something going wrong? And what does that thing going wrong look like? Well, part of the, when something goes wrong, it's going to be, did we lose information? Did we expose people? Um, are we going to get audited by regulators? Are we going to get fined? Wait, wait, why, why are you exposing people, Gretchen? That, that's, it's not that kind of podcast. You know, I think it probably is that kind of podcast from what I understand. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, I, 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 yeah, it's, um, you know, I feel like exposed is a great term, whether it's um, you in a trench coat somewhere or somebody's data being exposed on the web. Either way, it's, you know, somebody feels very vulnerable because things about them that are sensitive are suddenly um, floating out there in the public, um, like such as the with the uh, trench coat situation. Um, so, yeah, so you got the exposure problem. It's an issue. But, you know, the idea is that, like, you need to know what you know and you need to know what you don't know. You know, when we work with clients, it's like, do you know where your systems are? Do you know where your data is? Do you know where your children are at night? Um, but... If you don't know where things are, if you can't name them and label them, then you can't necessarily protect them. So it's like, well, can we can we figure out where the data is? Can we pick some of the regulations that are hardest? And do they align to the, the ones that are like less stringent so that we can just, if we follow GDPR and PIPL everywhere, 
will that cover us? You know, you can look at things like that, but it's like, it's, um, it's really important to like first figure this out in terms of, Hey, do we have things today that work well? Like, are we mature ish? Like, do we know where our stuff is where we don't know what's the real risk? What's the harm? How do we prioritize learning more about it? Are the tools we can put in place to do better with this? Is this environment so complicated? It's gotta be manual or maybe parts of it have to be, but so there's step-by-step step that you have to go to. And, you know, to some degree, you don't have to go through this large arduous process end to end. You can pick and choose parts that are really the riskiest and address it. If it's like, hey, well, we're really worried about healthcare data. Okay, cool. Let's look at those regulations. Let's look at where that data is and really what the risk is. And then we can step back and go, what's the next thing? And it really is partially understanding that inherent risk of, well, if it's healthcare data, we'll maybe, you know, well, it'll be most damaging to us versus if it's other sorts of data, maybe less damaging. So it's um, it's really all about managing risk and realizing that you can't fix everything at once. And there's always going to be something that needs to get fixed later. So what can we prioritize to, um, you know, further get that monkey off our back? All right. And where, where do you see like organizations like Educause, for example, um, helping drive, right? We know for those of you out there that don't know, Educause is essentially uh, a working group filled with a bunch of people who do a lot of stuff in, in IT. They do a lot of really, really cool work. Where do you see a role for an organization like that in sort of kind of setting like the minimum, right? What is the standard yeah. of due care? Below this, you are a disaster. And above it, then we can start tweaking, right? So yeah. where do you see the role of those organizations? So uh, so Educause is a great example. Like industry groups are wonderful as a means to help collectively solve problems that no one organization has the funds or maybe the people and specialties to, to solve it themselves. And like you said before, education, maybe they're not spending the same money as a bank is on security. So creating that community is important. But, you know, Educause has helped support this thing called HECVAT, which is a way for, for, for universities to look at third-party vendors. Educause has events that people get together. Unfortunately, I have another event, so I'm going to miss it, but at the first week during the first week of May, Educause is having their annual cybersecurity privacy event in Seattle, actually. And um, I really wish I could be there because it's a really cool event. I mean, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. So so they in particular are great. And like the concepts of getting together to trade information is great. And if it's not through Educause, then a lot of the universities I work with do have other means. They go, well, I talk with these three schools. And one of the people at that school says, I talk with these five schools. So people have a way to do it informally where they have to. But somewhere like Educause is a great way to like cut that shortcut out and just see, you know, instead of what two or three people are doing, what, you know, 30 or 40 organizations are doing. So I, I love that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the things I learned when you and I worked together as leadership partners at Gartner was that there's a lot of um, vertical cross-pollination that needs to take place that doesn't, right? People in banking say, well, what do other people in banking do? People in insurance say that. And one of the things I loved about that role was that we could get the education people and the finance people in the same group and they would go, hey, they're doing something pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's also important. You know, everybody always wants to know, well, you know, what are the people who do what I do doing? But I feel like there's a huge opportunity to learn from others. And that's why I think, you know, broader conferences, I think, are great for those folks as well, because they can hear from other verticals. Well, absolutely. Um, like from, from a university perspective, you know, most universities have some form of financial account. You know, they um, you know, you've got like a dining card maybe that has money on it prepaid. Or simply, you know, 
you know, the amount that you owe the university and how you're paying. So there's payments involved, there's financial accounts involved. So there, there's aspects of banking that schools have to worry about. And then for banking, you know, they're so heavily regulated that like for them, there's a lot of like aspects of ingenuity they can't really get into when it comes to security, privacy. And so universities are a great way to learn. Like in universities, when you're looking at huge data sets for research, you may be looking at confidential computing, which is something that combines other concepts into one way to really protect data. And, you know, banks really benefit from these things because if it's a new technology, like, you know, again, in universities, there's exploration of PETs, privacy enhancing technologies. And this is great. It's a way you can kind of figure out what works best and figure out like, what does it support HIPAA? Can you get a HIPAA waiver? Does it support this or that? And, you know, folks in banks can really take advantage of this stuff once it's incubated in those environments, you know? Yeah. And, and I, th I think that's a great lesson um, is that there's always opportunities to learn from peers and colleagues. I'm, I'm a big fan of social proof, which is like, what are other people doing? And, and one of the things, you know, when I was creating presentations at Gartner, sometimes people would say, well, you can't put a problem out there without having a solution. And I used to fight that tooth and nail because ultimately everyone it's, it's helpful to know we're not the only ones that have that problem. And I think that's what those working groups are, are great for. And, and I think that, that opportunity to, to interact and, and interface, I think is really, is really um, helpful. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, there's an old saying, like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the reality is like, whether you know you have a hammer or not, you've got something based on what you're doing. So, you know, looking for a problem, like with your hammer, that solution in your hand, that's not unusual. And it does create a way to go, hey, you know, like, you know, there, there's some things that a hammer cannot solve, as I can tell you. Broken nose, a hammer will not solve it. Um, maybe cause it, but uh, long story when my kids were little. Anyway, so the point is, though, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. But it's like people always argue about, like, when we were looking at GRC, um, you know, well, people say, don't buy software to fix GRC until you fix the process. I don't know about that. Sometimes you should buy the software. And once you've like indebted yourself by buying expensive software, you really do have to fix the process. So, you know, which comes first, like the solution, the problem, you know, causation versus correlation. These are all things that, you know, there's no one right answer, you know, like there's a lot of wrong ones probably, but no one right answer. You know, I feel for folks like us where we're in an advisory consultative role, I feel like sometimes our job is more about telling people what didn't work than than what did. Um, you know, when I always talk about frameworks, I always say, look, frameworks are good for two reasons. Number one, the people that wrote them have already made those mistakes and then you don't have to make them. And I think that's actually a very powerful thing. I free, People frequently refer to me as an expert, and I don't like that term. I am an experienced practitioner. All that means is I know a bunch of stuff because I've made all those mistakes already and, and then some. And I think that we need to help bring people along. And I think that's, again, back to Educause and other um, you know groups. I think that's where you can learn and Part of the challenge is if you screw something up in security, you get fired and people are not that quick to open the raincoat, right? Back to the trench coat metaphor. Um, and and any thoughts on how we can sort of address that, right? Nobody nobody wants to be, you know, the person who unplugged, and this didn't happen to me, but it happened to a guy that worked for me, uh, who unplugged the fiber right. channel cable and then went, oh, crap, better plug that back in and caused a six-hour network outage, right? And then wouldn't admit it for hours. So how do you, how do you work with people who are in that kind of a situation, right? They don't want to, they don't want to say, Hey, I screwed this up or worse. I don't know how to do that. 
Well, so so the thing is like, you know, it's it's the the thing you just described, that concern is getting bigger. Because, you know, if you're looking at like changes in regulation, what's being proposed, what's being signed, you know, if you are a, a CISO, potentially, you know, in certain places, you could go to jail for making a mistake. You know, um, you don't want that to happen. It's like, you know, wh why would you agree to be a head of security if you're going to be held personally liable for these things? You know, and, and this is something that's being discussed in the regulatory world. So it, it's even scarier, like, you know, okay, if you could be sued, maybe there's some insurance coverage there. But but jail like that that's that's scary. And so hopefully that's not going to be something that we really see substantially, you know. Or if a CISO proves that they were doing their best to do the right things, and there's some things you just can't protect against or predict, you know, if, if that's a reasonable excuse or workaround, then that's great. Um, so so that's already an issue. Um, but but beyond that, you're right. Like, how do you make sure you know all the right things? Because nobody knows, you know. We all have our blind spots and our weak points. And the reality is like, well, let's see, you need to get other opinions. You know, there's a reason that a lot of different thing regulations and different industry standards require third party, independent, whatever, whether it's an audit, whether it's a, uh, you know, a vulnerability assessment, something like that. But it's because, you know, you do have blind spots and somebody's got to tell you what it is. It's why, you know, we should work well with auditors. We shouldn't try to you know, blah, auditors coming, uh, not again, but it's like, we should accept that, well, you know, we don't like what they find. We do like that they find them because it's better they do than somebody else, you know? So these are all like really valid points. And, you know, it's a community, man. You know, we're, we, we can know all this stuff on our own. You know, if anything, um, you know, what I always think of is, I like to think of like the security team and in particular the CISO as sort of being like the goalie in soccer. You know, you are not the only line of defense, but you are the last line of defense. And from where you sit in the goal, you've got the best view of the whole field. So if you tell you know defenders, hey, look over there, or hey, do this or that, they, they ought to listen. But if they're doing nothing, you're not going to save the whole game because that's just going to take too much for one man, one team, one woman, whatever. So you know, I, I think it's you know think of it as a game like that. It's also not one and done. Again, the, the match is ongoing, man, and it's like you don't just you know you got to keep up with it, man. So it's there's a lot there that you got to do. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a great point about about the fact that um, CISOs have a lot of stuff that's sort of in their purview, and they tend to get blamed for things that they can't do. I mean, you know, the the example I used to use all the time is CISO goes to the business and says, "Hey, this is we got to fix this," and the business says, well, "Right, that looks bad. What should we do?" And the CISO says, "Well, we have three options." and they say, what's the cheapest? We'll take that. And CISO says, are you sure? Because we're pretty exposed there. No, 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 we'll take that. The CISO does that. Something bad happens. Who gets fired? The CISO, right? So the accountability and the responsibility, I think, is, is problematic. Thankfully, we're seeing more improvement there. And I do think the, the SEC regulation, um, I think, is going to help, even for non-publicly traded entities, because the SEC has a reputation for putting out pretty well thought out, pretty well articulated um, guidance, and they have the ability to punish the crap out of people, right? So I, hopefully that will, will help. Um, I think the problem is that the way they define cybersecurity expertise at the board is a little uh, problematic. Well, I think you know, taking taking a two-week yeah. class is not going to make you a cyber expert to be able to have those conversations. Well, it, that's how I became one from a two-week class. Isn't that how you became one? No, I, I actually know. took um, the one-week class because I am oh, very lazy and I read very fast. I'm a very busy <laughs> person. 
Yeah, it's um, I like years ago I was quoted in some article um, as being you know Gretchen Rock cybersecurity expert, and I, I think I I sent a link to it to my brother who like wrote back to me and said, "When did you become a cybersecurity expert?" I said, "Well, that was about the time that somebody asked me, hey, are you a cybersecurity expert?'" I said, "Yeah, okay." So it's like you know yep. I'm, I'm with you about like what it takes is like having the visibility and having somebody go, "You look like a person with an opinion. What do you think?" And you being willing to say it. Um. So so regulations can help, you know, they shouldn't be the reason we do something, but you know, when you're talking about board boards and stuff like that and what they need to know, the thing is like, one of the things I work on, and I've been working with boards for a long time and investors for a long time is like, they need to look at security as more than a cost center. You know, at first when I was working with these leaderships, they're like, what do I really care about security? It's maybe a 10th of it and maybe it is a 10th of the whole company. So security's tiny. I, what do I care? Well, what it is, is a force multiplier. Like it can be something that can really cost you a lot or it can, it can also do a lot for you. So it's like, you know, we talk about, well, if you don't fix it, here's here's the risk and it could be expensive. But it's also like, you know, think about it. Things like if you don't have some sort of like automated password reset tool and you put one in, which is a security thing, suddenly you can get rid of half your help desk because that's half of what they do is passwords. So security can be, it's a control function. And it's, it's an awfully good one to, you know, have an outsized impact on the organization. Once people start understanding that, you know, and they, they can appreciate the risk, they can appreciate the value, and then the discussion's a lot better. So when I talk risk with these boards and with investors, I always start with inherent risk. So in other words, like if there was no security whatsoever, it just wasn't a thing that was talked about, what are the things that would go wrong that would be the biggest concern to you? If you're in, if you're producing electricity, you can't produce it anymore. That's a big problem. If you are like taking care of students and, you know, all the students' personal data goes out and even if some are minors to make it even more so of an issue, that's a big problem. So if you look at the biggest risks and how they could be the biggest loss, suddenly people can appreciate why these things are a big deal. But instead going, well, this is a big deal because, I don't know, impact prob times probability says whatever. That's nice, but, but inherent risk and... Then you look at how secure you are and what that does to mitigate the risk. So you can figure out how like serious the residual risk is. These are the words we need to use as practitioners. And when we do, and we like normalize this kind of terminology, huge difference, whether it's in banking, whether it's in you know university settings, whether it's like talking with our kids about why they shouldn't do that thing on the internet with your work computer. Not that that's happened to you, but... Uh, so. Of course not. But, but no, so... so I agree with you 100%, I, but I, I sometimes feel like there's a level above that too, where security people tend to struggle. Like I always say very simply, your boards and your CEO, et cetera, they care about three things, money coming in, money going out. If something goes sideways, who's in trouble, right? Those, That's what they care about. And I think that we need to work with security and risk practitioners. You disagree? I disagree. Okay, let's hear it. You're allowed. Board members, especially in publicly traded companies, they, they care about quarterly performance. That's it. So we all have this impression if we're not on boards that, you know, they're, they're sitting there stroking their beards or their chin hairs or something and looking out in the distance. They're not. They're looking at the quarter they're in. And that's that's generally the perception. So they, they care about quarterly performance because that's the thing that keeps them on the board. And they, they care a little bit about like, um, like first to market. So they, they want to know that we're innovating and we're keeping ahead. For, for first market types of things, we can fix the things that go wrong later. But beyond that, it's this quarter and this quarter really alone. So when you talk with them, you can talk about fixing it today because our architecture is going to change in a year and we need to be ready. That's great. But if it's not this quarter, 
and you're about to spend the money this quarter for that thing, you know, you better have a balance there because that's really what they think about. Makes sense, right? Well, but I don't I don't think yeah. we just I think we just I don't think we disagree. I think we're talking about the exact same thing. You're just articulating it differently, and maybe you're right about the time frame being shorter. Um well, but I it's still about it's still about money, money coming in. They, they they don't think of it. I mean, I, I think that you have to just look at it at what they're thinking and what their motivation is. Because like you're talking about, of course, like expenses and, and profitability, and that's cool, but motivation. It's all about the motivation and merchandising. Merchandising, merchandising. Okay, sorry. Motivation. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Little, little, uh, little space, space balls there. Um, so have you seen, by the way, that, uh, history of the world part two is coming out as a series on, it's I think out. Hulu. it's out, it's out already. Oh, it's, it's oh, I got to watch it. It's terrible. It's yeah. terrible. It's, it's, honestly it really? it, it, you know, you oh, almost think it's a 98 year old. Um, so it's, in my that's, opinion, that's, you just, you, know, you just ruined my old day, Gretchen. I'm sorry. I'm so I, excited. That's the first person I've had this discussion with. In my personal opinion, it's um, it was interesting. Like some of the things that I was most looking forward to were missed out in it, and it's like the the periods of history they chose were not really like like I don't know. You know, we're both Jewish. I could say they didn't feel Jewishy enough for them to really pick on, and it's just like the angle was. It was just like you know, as somebody Jewish who grew up on Mel Brooks, you know, it's like you're like, huh? Wait, okay. I mean, it's a show, but. You know, maybe they're looking at the camera going, ha, like, like they used to, but it's, it didn't keep up with the times. It, it feels. So you think, you think they're, they're too, trying to be too clever and, and not moving with the times. Uh, in some way, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they, they put their trust in too many hands. And like I said, trafe, that's the word for it. Uh, kosher versus trafe, it's a little bit too trafe for me. <laughs> All right. So th- I think that is a great closing point. Uh, so let's just kind of reiterate a little bit. So um, when it comes to college movies, Gretchen's a fan of the 80s. So a little bit of, Reven- Re- little bit of Revenge of the Nerds, a little bit of uh, Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Not Batman Val Kilmer. I agree with you. I don't think he did a good job oh. there. Um, yeah. We need to talk more in higher ed about cooperation, about shifting towards a risk management methodology and, and sort of, uh, thought process. Um, we talked a lot about the, the regulatory environment, which I think is not getting any, uh, any simpler. And Gretchen is not a fan of the new history of the world part two. Any other closing thoughts, my friend? Um, you know, the one last thing is, um, you know, if we're talking about universities, I think that, Privacy is often underplayed at a lot of universities. So there, there's so many that still don't have a privacy officer. And um, they need one. They, they assume that security can handle it. Security's got their hands full as it is. Not, not really a secret there. So, you know, ones that don't have that, that focus really need to think about it. There's, there's overlap, like data protection, but there's so much more to it. And so, you know, like privacy is a bigger part of security for universities than maybe other industries, you know, that are less, you know, human facing. But, you know, we, 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 we need to think about this thing more holistically. And security is there for a reason. It's to stop people from doing dumb things. It's to prevent fraud. It's to upkeep things private. And, you know, you got to think about what your organization is and make sure you've got those aligned components. That's all. Thank all you right. For me awesome. Thank you, Gretchen, for, for joining us today. Uh, and thank you to all the listeners out there. Um, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels with my guest and friend, Gretchen Ruck. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out.
Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.